In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. My co-hosts this week, every week, Max Linsky, Aaron Lammer. Hey guys. Hey. You sort of said that like you wished, like maybe this week would be different. I didn't mean for it to come out that way. <laughs> <laughs> Another week, uh, same hosts. Yeah. Probably some of the listeners feel that way. These guys, still these guys. Yeah. Someone asked us how long we've been doing this show. And I, uh, I had to do that that math that's divided by fifty two, and I like somehow like I just screwed it up, and it like came out to five years. So I was like, oh god, you could have done that math on our third year anniversary party, which was very recently. We have those fudgy kind of uh, anniversary parties. Though, who's on the show this week? This week I talked to Jessica Hopper. I am holding in my hands her book, which is called "The First Collection of Criticism by a Living Female Rock Critic." She started writing about music when she was like fifteen, sixteen years old. And uh, she has uh, spanned many genres. She's written about all types of music. She's the most music knowledgeable person possibly that I've ever talked to. Um, but she also talks about writing and her career, how she got into it. And uh, recently, a lot of discussion around women in the music industry uh, that has sort of stemmed from her Twitter account in a really interesting, also somewhat disturbing way. So it was a great interview. I know you've been uh, waiting to do this one for a long time, so I'm glad, it, I'm glad it happened. I have a question, though. Sometimes when you talk to these people about pop culture, you get a little nervous about your own uh, sort of pop culture fluency. It's Yeah, it's a lack of fluency, possibly bad taste. <laughs> did but, uh, I, I did your bad taste emerge in this interview is what I'm asking. No, I wasn't like, can we just let's talk about the Almond Brothers. When I was 16, I loved the Almond Brothers. Uh that's not true anymore, by the way. I'm not a huge Almond Brothers fan or something. But It's okay. Uh, no shame. No shame. I mean, they're all right. I like the Almond Brothers. Anyway, I know I didn't try to assert my own uh, critic's voice <laughs> about pop culture. I think uh, I just mostly wanted to hear from her. Aaron, if you were going to assert your voice, man, how would you do it? Assert my voice? Mm-hmm. That's right. That doesn't, that doesn't sound like me. <laughs> Passive-voiced individual. But sometimes I like to bring that passivity to the uh, to the masses, and I would do it with Mailchimp. I, uh, they they provide the best email service for businesses in the game. Over eight million companies rely on them. Um, my favorite feature is that you can get up to two thousand subscribers for free with Mailchimp. So you can actually start a mailing list without even putting your credit card down, and then as you grow, they grow with you. Thanks, Mailchimp. Here's Evan with Jessica Hopper. Jessica Hopper, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> and good morning. You're a Chicago person. You're a Chicago resident. You've worked in Chicago for a long time. Not quite two decades now. Do you identify yourself as sort of like being not of New York or not of LA when it comes to music criticism? Like, is there something specific about being from Chicago or working out of Chicago that you feel like makes your work different? I think being in Chicago allowed me to have the career that I have in a lot of ways and do the kind of writing that I, I do, in part because when I started freelancing full-time, I was living in an apartment and my where my rent was 250 bucks a month. What year was that? About 10 years ago. It was a dump, but, <laughs> I mean, I, and I was splitting it with somebody. Um, but having really cheap rent, working in a city that had an alt-weekly where I was expected to do 1,200 words a week of, you know, thoughtful essay. And Mm -hmm. worst case scenario, if I didn't get very much work that month, I could like DJ a couple parties or something like that, that it wasn't... I had a lot of space in my life to write. Mm -hmm. And I also had a lot of freedom because my expenses were so low, to say no to a lot of things Mm -hmm. that I didn't want to do so that I could just concentrate on the kind of writing that I wanted to be doing. 
And also, you know, if I wanted to take two weeks where I basically did nothing but research or read about a certain thing or just go to the library bunch or whatever it is that I wanted to do, it allowed me to do it there. I didn't have to knock myself out on the hustle, you know, that I would have had to if if I had been in New York, you know, but also it it took a... (laughs) I think in other ways, my career grew really slowly, too, got to incubate. And, you know, if I was in New York, I, w- I would have had to be knocking myself out and doing all the things that you have to do to survive as a freelancer in, in the world that I work in in New York. Yeah, it's a different different set of pressures. Yeah, too. I mean, it, it it's a real it's a real small pond in Chicago and. I mean, I know like three other people that write about music for a living in Chicago. <laughs> really? <laughs> you know, I mean, I think there used to be, I mean, that's in part because there used to be more jobs. I probably knew 12 people at one point, but I would say, it, you know, it's it's probably under 10 oh, wow. people at this point. Well, it seemed also from, from just reading back a lot of pieces, both that are in the collection and then finding other pieces elsewhere, that... There's something about it to me that you you must know the music that has come out of Chicago as well as anyone alive almost. Like you've been in there's references to being in clubs and like discover like finding new acts and then like hip hop artists that have come out of Chicago and do you feel like staying in one place and like being of that place gave you some insights into sort of the way music has evolved over the last 20 years? I mean, I, I hope so, but part of it was that um, one of my beats, which you don't you don't see it really in the book because it, it's kind of a different kind of writing than than is collected in the book. But uh, one of my regular gigs for a long time was that I was uh, the local music columnist for the Tribune, mm-hmm. and so every week I wrote about somebody who was probably first of three on a Monday night at the empty bottle. And so I had to keep tabs on things. Mm-hmm. And, and it, that was a great thing to be able to do. Is to, I, I feel very close to the city in that way. And also, it's rare in the last couple of years that we've had any sort of like breakout act from Chicago. Mm. You know, we, when I moved to Chicago, Chicago was really like the center of indie rock in America in a lot of ways. And... Um, that changed and and evolved and um and and it's been lying fallow in some ways for a while but um what drew me to it was that it was such a great town for music and and that you know you could see like the most amazing free jazz shit on a Tuesday night and then go to see like a hardcore band at the Fireside Bowl and then go see, you know, whatever. It's like I have this really distinct memory of, I think I'd lived in Chicago for like two years at that point. In one night, like I went to go see like a punk band at the Fireside Bowl, went to go see Lauren Hill and Outcast at the Chicago Theater, and then went to go see June of 44 at Lounge Jacks, like all in the same night. And it was just like all of them were some of the greatest shows I ever saw. And I was just like... Chicago, you know, (laughs) I think Chicago has just historically been such a musically vibrant city and and that it really does inspire me in that way. And, and also, you know, being someone who is like a, a journalist tasked with like documenting the local scene, you want to try to understand it so that you can put people within, you know, put, put it all in perspective. And also, you know, when you're writing for a a daily paper you know you just have to you have to know your shit yeah so let's talk for a second about how you how you ended up in Chicago because I feel like there's a little bit of background in your book and throughout your pieces and I've also been reading a bunch of interviews about sort of how you got into music writing you didn't uh, come to it through you know the J, J school or even college route no. <laughs> I barely graduated high school <laughs> So what, how did you first, I mean, you, you started writing about music very young. How did you get into that? How did you approach it? I mean, basically, it, it started because someone told me I couldn't do it. Who told you you couldn't do it? Uh, there was a local music publication in Minneapolis that was a monthly. 
and they'd written something about Babes in Thailand where I was like, this person does not understand. <laughs> My favorite band. Fuck all y'all. And um, I called them, and I was like, I want to write a corrective. And, uh, like a response to a re review kind of? It was like a feature. And yeah. I was like, and, and, and I just, what I remember is that the way that people were writing about Babes in Toilet at the time was like, that they were caustic, that they were screamy, that they were amateur. And, and so much of what I knew about punk rock historically at that time was from reading about it. You and you know, were? 15. 15. I'd been into music for like, at that point, probably 10 months. <laughs> I was like, I am an expert, and I have a job <laughs> at a record store, okay? But that's how you are when you're 15. You're like, I am a genius. Well, maybe I was, but you know, <laughs> I was confident that like my voice counted even if someone else didn't see it like that. I was like, this band means everything to me. Like, So I should, I should be the one to be writing these things. Where, where do you think that came from? Like your, the confidence that your voice counted? Do you, can you pinpoint like parents or... I mean, I sort of the, the sort of trifecta that I identify is that I identified as a feminist by the time I was like in fourth and fifth grade. Soon, I don't know if I necessarily use that word, but I think I was probably saying like you know women's rights or something, you know, women's lip. <laughs> <laughs> Said the fourth grader. <laughs> My parents were journalists, mm -hmm. and I was a Montessori weirdo until eighth grade. Hmm. And Montessori is very much about being autodidactic and learning by doing and learning by failing. And it sees the value of risk very much in that way. That's how you learn. Hmm. And I think you can look at my career and say, like, yes, she learned by fucking up a lot. <laughs> um, those were the things that were sort of by the time I was a teenager. I was like, those three things together just sort of were like, yeah, I can do this. Huh. And it wasn't so much like, oh, yeah, my mom's the editor of the paper. I can do this too, but that I had respected it a lot, but, and, and just was like, this is like, it's, it, it's hard to explain what it means to you when you like literally like grow up in a newsroom. Uh -huh. Journalism is like a way of participating in the world and one that was familiar to me, though say writing about a band was very, very different than what my parents were doing at that time. Like mm -hmm. when I was in high school, my dad, my dad was with the, uh, the Associated Press from, I think, 75 until last year. Oh, wow. Based out of uh, Mexico City and covered South and Central America throughout the 80s. Oh, wow. So my dad lived pretty far away from me, but, you know, and he was like a guy who was like camped out in a hotel room for weeks waiting for Manuel Noriega to leave. Like, that's what my dad did for a living and was like traveling with the Contras and, you know, took me on a vacation to El Salvador once in the 80s. <laughs> just like, you know, like, <laughs> a great place to take your kid in the 80s. Um, he taught me how to drive when I was like 10. You know, my dad <laughs> My dad was really like, I'm, I'm my dad's only kid and, and I, I benefited from maybe his, his just sort of like, well, why wouldn't I teach my daughter to do these things or take her <laughs> these places or like literally take her to the jungle with me? Yeah. You know, and I... I Grew up in my mom's newsrooms. She was managing editor of the Minneapolis Star Tribune by the time I was in high school, but that she had been at, she, she'd been at weeklies and dailies. Uh, she also is the uh, person that fires David Carr at the beginning of Night of the Gun. That is amazing. Yes. <laughs> but then, uh, uh, Have you talked to her about it? Yes. I mean, it, you know, he was, he was family friend, very much missed. And, uh, but, you know, that was just like, what I did, like I, I read the paper when I got home from school every day. Yeah, like starting when I was like a young child, like because that's what my parents did. <laughs> you know, I read, you know, all the magazines that my parents got in the mail when I got home. Like I, I was like kind of a weird loner kid, anyways, and it was like I cared about things like even whatever, like the dumb local music journalism. Like I wanted it to be accurate. Mm -hmm. God damn it. So you the know? music, but the music magazine, I take it they did not agree that you should be they, able to rewrite a response. They didn't, they did not take me up off of my, on my offer. But the woman that took the message is still my friend. Oh, funny. really? Yeah. And she, she was like, I, I told them we should call you back. And, you know, but I, I think I said in the message, like, I'm 15. <laughs> you know, I was, I, I was like, I think it was between ninth and 10th grade. I still had braces. I mean, I looked like I was probably 12. But that in some way drove you a little bit? Just the, the first yeah, rejection? Yeah, long story long. 
long-form podcast, very long. You know, when you're 15 and your whole life is punk rock and somebody tells you you can't do anything, you know, that you can't do this thing, what do you do? You do it. That was it. And so I just went and started making a fanzine. And then shortly after my fanzine came out, it was called Hit It or Quit It. And the first one I made was about 40 pages. And I distributed. I was very, you know, I printed up 300 copies. I mean, I really was like, I expect people to read it's this. ambitious print run. Yeah. And it sold out. And, and by the time... I started working on two. I was occasionally writing for City Pages, and I was writing for that same place that told me no and became a columnist there by the end of high school and wrote for any place that would have me in Minneapolis and other fanzines. And then, you know, when I was 19, I started writing for Spin. That was, like, my first national. At this point, did you did you say, I'm not going to college. I've already... I've gone pro. I'm, I'm already doing what I want to do. I was already doing everything I wanted to be doing. Why would I stop and go to college to learn how to do it? Mm-hmm. Also, like I hadn't visited any colleges and I didn't, I was so like autodidactic that my parents basically thought like, oh, she'll figure it out if she's going to do this. Hmm. And so and, like, we kind of just didn't take care of that. <laughs> um, I f- also, I fell asleep on my um, ACTs, and so it looked like I cheated because I got like a perfect score on half, and then the other half was like literally not even filled in. <laughs> so I was like, "Fuck it, I'm moving to LA." That's how I got to LA. It's a fascinating path. I mean, we have a lot of journalists on this uh, podcast who just sort of like went to college and then like moved up in this sort of uh, very standard way, and I think starting so early and then figuring it out on your own. Well, you know, the other thing was, was that I was working with music and I thought I had to move to L.A. to, like, do that. Also, at that point, by the end of high school, I'd literally had, like, every job in Minneapolis that was related to music that mm-hmm. I could have other than, like, working at a venue. <laughs> and and uh, you, did you play music? You played music as well. Yes, poorly. Oh. And I played in bands. and That story should end there. Um <laughs> And and I moved to L.A. because I thought that's where I had to move to. Well, I mean, back then, in 1994, that's, no, not 1994, when I graduated from high school, 93, uh, if you were going to work in the school. music industry, that's what you, you kind of had to go do, was yeah. move to L.A. And I, I did that, and then after I realized, a year realized, like, I didn't, I didn't actually need to do that. Um, and so I was working with music and wanted to be a publicist, because that's what I'd been working, doing kind of on the side in high school. Were you doing that as you wanted to work in the music business or that was a job that would enable you to write about music and be involved in the music scene and be able to write on the side? Everything I did was an expression of fandom, Hmm. basically. I wanted to cheerlead these bands that I loved. I liked helping in that way. It felt noble, you know? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I mean, it was pretty idealistic about independent music in that way at that at that time and that age. But I didn't look at writing as a career until I'd been doing it for about ten or eleven years. So even after you were writing for Spin, I mean, Spin was a big deal at that time. Yeah. But so when you started writing for Spin and you were what nineteen, or you didn't think I'm going to be I, a I, I was so... magazine writer. I was so outside that game. I didn't even know how to approach it. Hmm. I mean, I just it was, it was like a, a distant city in the horizon, you know. I, I didn't, but also the kind of writing I was doing then and putting in my fanzine. As much as I loved making my fanzine, and I, I did my fanzine from the time I was fifteen till I was twenty-eight. There's a reason that there's not a lot of stuff in the book from that time. My record reviews were basically making fun of bands at length, and or showing off my, you know, being really, like, precious and showing off my music knowledge that someone who's 22 shouldn't have, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, like, typical shit. But I did love to write, and I did love to make a magazine. But again, to get back to, like, the the influence of having journalist parents, editor parents, is that I thought, not that I was illegitimate, but, like, in 1994 or whatever, my dad was, like, on assignment in Mogadishu. What I was doing was not journalism. It was like a hobby, and it was fun. And also, back then, pre-internet, everyone was just expected to participate to sort of keep the like economy of things alive within independent music. And 
that was kind of also what a fanzine was. I, I, re- I have a very distinct memory of going to a show in Minneapolis as a teenager and hearing someone who I very much respected in the scene talking about how, oh, that guy, he just goes to shows. <laughs> like, he doesn't play in a band. He doesn't book anything. He doesn't make a fancy. He doesn't write, doesn't any of that. He doesn't put bands up at his house. He doesn't do his part. Mm. And that's that's really how I read it. And I was like, I'm going to do a fanzine. I got to do a fanzine. I got to have, like, I got to have something to show for, for being here at First Avenue every week. And was there a point that you can remember when you when you soured on doing publicity or at a certain point you did transition into being just a writer yes and what and it it was funny i I, I could have done it earlier that was that was like that's like one of the great like sadnesses to me of my like adult writing career is that i was so frightened to just jump off into full-time freelancing and i thought can i really write can i really keep up with that can i really do the kind of writing that that this requires of me and I jumped off into it and I literally just had like people are like oh yeah we've been waiting for you for like two years so that you don't have any conflicts of interest and I was like oh <laughs> you know like I, here I am I think I'm like jumping off a cliff and I'm I'm not like the the ground like rose to meet my feet there's all these people and I was like oh so it was just me and it, you know not going to college had made me feel like a little illegitimate in part because you know all of my good friends in writing and what I was doing, you know, we're out here and we're really like had it going on, mm-hmm. you know, Sasha Fred Jones and John Carmonica and, you know, all my spin friends and Juliana Escobedo Shepard and, and all of these people that were like, like my friends that I like clamored to like, I just wanted to be like as smart and cool and funny and, you know, whatever, all the things that they were when they wrote. And a lot of those people had gone to college. A lot of those people had gone to really good colleges. Um, Sometimes I felt sort of like outside of that, you know, of course, because I was in Chicago and I was writing for a weekly and that didn't even have a website. And um, (laughs) the reader reader didn't have a website. I mean, it, it, it that came at a point, but like it was like it was like under like this really bizarre per article paywall. It was really strange and arcane. But the great thing was that, you know, for the first like couple of years I was writing for them, you made like royalties basically if people accessed the archives because yeah. they had to pay like 71 cents to read your piece. Yeah. I don't think people outside of Chicago were like really even reading me or able to. And so in some ways I felt sort of like, um, oh, I'm in this other world. I'm in this sort of like third tier world or something. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like New York when you're 28 or whatever seems like the heart of legitimacy or whatever. Yeah. And But then once I started writing full time, I think I realized what I was doing was pretty legit. Yeah. And did it flip into it all? Like, you know what? Fuck these people went to college. Like I have a unique perspective because I came up a different way. You know, I sort of flitted in and out of that, but that um, my my wonderful editor, Kiki Ablon, who was my editor at The Reader and was thankfully the hardest editor I ever had in part because she just, she expected so much from me um, and I really had to rise to the occasion and that's what she would tell me. <laughs> it was like, well, if we just, you know, basically we're, we're teaching you how to write because we want you to do this and do this well. The thing was is that I there was times I think I came back from uh, the EMP pop conference, you know, which is like our people who write about music, like our deeply nerdy weekend long summer camp, basically. Mm. Um, and I came back and you know felt dwarfed by the intellects that I was in the room with, and you know listening to Grill Marcus speak and being like, I can barely follow along. <laughs> and I came back and I think I was telling Kiki like. Yeah, I th- I feel like I need to go to college or like audit some classes at Medill or something. And she's like, it will take all the reasons you're writing is special and it will ruin it. Don't go, don't go to college. Hmm. Don't go to J school. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, I trust Kiki implicitly. So I didn't. Hey, this is Aaron, your other host, with a quick word from our sponsor. Blue Apron. Um, You may empathize with this. I'm at the end of my day here. It's about 6.15 p.m. And I don't know what I'm having for dinner. 
I don't want to go to the grocery store and make a big complicated meal, nor do I want expensive, unhealthy takeout. Is there a third option? There is Blue Apron. They will deliver farm fresh ingredients and step-by-step recipes to your home for less than $10 a meal. Now, each one of these is a unique recipe. You'll get to learn to cook with specialty ingredients that are normally hard to find. You can make stuff that's perfect for date night, cooking with friends. They have family plans if you've got kids. Each meal is about five to 700 calories, although it tastes significantly better, takes under half an hour to make, and comes with shipping that is both flexible and free. I'm just looking over this menu where you never get things twice. I would like some of these things at least once. Salmon with quinoa, lemon herb butter, and roasted broccoli. Yes. Let's see. Crispy Cajun catfish with Cajun rice and spicy remoulade. Don't know how to pronounce that, but still, yes. Anyway, um, I really recommend checking them out. If you would like to take the question of what am I having for dinner out of your day, uh, you go to blueapron.com slash longform. You'll get two free meals and you'll be supporting the show. Thanks, Blue Apron. They truly are a better way to cook. Our next sponsor is Fracture. They print your photos in vivid color directly on glass. Uh, Fracture has been described as HTTV for your photos. And I think the, the comparison's kind of apt, actually. You, you stroll into a room, you see someone with an old boxy TV, you go, what, what's going on there? I feel the same way about framed photos after I've seen the magic of Fracture. Um, they ship everything you need to get your photos on the wall or desk right in the box with prices starting at $15 for a 5x5 print. 5x5, five five, that's a square. So if you've uh, been really liking something you put on Instagram, why not give it as a gift to maybe an older person who does not have Instagram? Uh, maybe you have a new hobby, a new animal. I personally like to document the lives of my cats extensively. Uh, I could take that a step further by getting them up on my wall in glass. So what I want you to do is go to FractureMe.com, put in coupon code LONGFORM, You'll get 15% off and help support this show. Thanks, Fracture. Uh, Here's Evan back with Jessica Hopper. So I want to ask you about what it takes to be a music critic, because I'm kind of fascinated with this, partly because when I started out in journalism, I did a little bit of music reviewing, and I just realized, like, I cannot do this. Like, this is not for me. This is basically my one skill. This This is the one thing I know how to do. I know. So I feel like you are a person who can tell <laughs> You're me. opposite. I, I, it strikes me that one of the things that's really difficult about music criticism is that you have to maintain a certain enthusiasm and love for music. Like when I was, you know, in my 20s as like millions upon millions, if not everyone, like there was music that mattered to me so much. It was so important to me. And I listened to it and made me feel a certain way. It seems like you have to sort of maintain that love of the importance of music as your career goes on, but also this sort of like critical distance. But I could be wrong about that because maybe you don't need the critical distance. Maybe it's more about investing yourself in the music. So I guess I'm curious how you approach your sort of love of music in combination with writing about it and it being work. Hmm. I'm still the same, you know, quote unquote fangirl I was at 15. Mm Mm-hmm. I just turned 39. I think critical distance is overrated. (laughs) But, you know, I mean, that's that's my stock and trade, I guess. I think you have to really give a shit. It really has to be your life in some ways. Music is how I understand the world. It's, I mean, it's certainly got a lot more complicated since high school, you know, having that as like a framework. And the last uh, super chunk record was was I wrote about I think it's called I Hate Music there's a lot of that record is about a good friend of Max good friend of the band's dying and you know basically the sort of like myth of the of that young idea when you're really young and you're like music saved my life music can save my life and then you're like 40 and people actually die and there's there's things that like you know your your life evolves and you have children and you are older and music can't be your life in the same way but still it's your framework and like I think to write about music as an adult and love it in the same way is complicated family is complicating being a feminist always is complicating how I adore popular music but to have that distance and that I mean that's like that's like the the thing you have to balance but I do think distance from it 
is overrated. I don't have a lot of interest in reading about things that are, you know, that that sort of hold them up clinically and examine them at an arm's length. And I'm not interested in criticism that's like, this song is good. This song feels bad. And I'm not trying to say the way that I do criticism is like the right way because I'm like, this is how I view the world through this Gap Hour record. Mm-hmm. Or, you know what I mean? I, that gets to one of the things that seems so difficult to me about it is that the, even the the value of music is so connected to who's listening to it. I was never a punk person. I'm like the least punk person. And so if I listen to punk music, I can appreciate it in a little more of a clinical way. Like I understand why people like this. But if you're writing about music, it seems like you can't just say this music is no good. These people don't know how to play their instruments. Like that's the kind of like bullshit way of approaching it. Like you have to somehow capture what it's about, mm-hmm. not just what the mm-hmm. l- literal music is, which seems mm-hmm. to me to be a very difficult thing to do. I, I mean, I don't think I got to that point. I, I don't think I was able to write about music in that way until I was like beyond just kind of that surfacey way until I was like eight or 10 years into doing it. Hmm. It's hard to get 10 years deep into anything. And then it seems like it's easy to fall. You referenced this, like the Riot Girl kind of movement and mm-hmm. and how, how easy it is for people to, uh, as they get older, sort of say, uh, well, this is what we were doing then. And, and that no one's important. doing it now. Yeah, yeah, it was important then, but no one gives a shit now. And you can sort of age up into this belief that like everything was better back when you were Yeah, younger. that's sort of like, I mean, I feel like the last 14 years, like the 90s just don't die. They're like cast in amber as like this, you know, music's perfect time when we had magazines and we had this and we had Riot Girl and we had, and Kurt Cobain was alive. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. If you can't see that there's things that are happening that are incredible evolutions of some of those ideas that are more vital, that are more inclusive, that are more powerful, you are totally missing out. And you're also not acknowledging like the ways that a lot of those things were really deeply flawed. Sure, they were like the best we could do then, but we can do a lot better now. You know, even though there's a whole section devoted to nostalgia in there, I'm pretty anti-nostalgia. Yeah, because nostalgia, I mean, it feels very of a piece with music writing. I think a lot because of Rolling Stone. I mean... Rolling Stone is is a nostalgia vehicle in many ways, and I, I really like Rolling Stone. And it's actually, one of the only four magazines about music still being published. <laughs> right, right. It's like so, the people. I make a joke that uh, the Pitchfork Review, where I am editor in chief. You are the editor in chief of the Pitchfork Review. Tut, tut, tut. I tend to think we're the only music magazine that's just about music. There's like four music magazines. Yeah, it's Rolling Stone, Rolling Stone Country, Us, and the Fader. And the fader has like fashiony stuff. Mm-hmm. We only have music. Hmm. Rolling Stone has politics. Rolling Stone Country is whatever. Rolling Stone Country. Right. I would, no, I'm not familiar it's with just, Rolling Stone just, Country. Basically, I think it's like a devotional fanzine to Miranda Lambert. <laughs> but I could be wrong. <laughs> and while our magazine is like retrospective, I try to do it without nostalgia, without without that sort of like that was better like I I feel like we should be able to look at music's past and evaluate it with like our kind of a contemporary you know current context and all that you know time has imbued on it whatever but that we can do that without blotting out everything that's happened since Mm -hmm. I don't feel like that's fair and I think it ages us and I think it distorts things yeah that approach implies that music is sort of better or worse in an objective way that it was better and now it's worse or vice versa and and to not see that it's all fluid you know sometimes we go through periods of times where i just think there's like not great music for like a few months uh-huh. you know when you're keeping up on stuff you're like huh we're kind of like a little lull right here you know or like last year was better you know or like something like that but it's like you have to realize like how fluid it is but also it's like I always think about how fucking furious I would get reading you know different critics particularly you know uh, people who are older and of course you know so they had like a big platform or whatever yeah steamed critics who would be like you know whatever it is you read like uh, Robert Hilburn in the LA Times or something I remember reading something like 
John Fogarty still got it and like blah 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 and the kids did it you know and it's just like oh god like someone fucking put me out in the pasture if that ever <laughs> becomes me and so anytime I, I start to to even get like sort of like a whiff of that like you know in my own mind or brain or heart or whatever that's like when I'm like okay I need to just like go open up Bandcamp in my browser and just put in like Chicago or put in like new riot girl feminist or like whatever and just see what like terms come up and like what's the shit someone put out this week hmm. and that's what I do and I'm always like oh my god this is person is a genius hmm. oh my god I love this you know it's like and 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 basically like reinvigorate or stimulate or wake up that part of me that that is still completely like thrilled by discovery and loves finding out about something new that speaks to me you know mm-hmm I really love this piece. Uh, it's from the reader that's about this uh, guy, David Bazan, who's like a Christian rocker, was a sort of like Christian rocker. What was the name of that band that he was Pedro in? Pedro the Lion. Pedro the Lion. Everyone check out Pedro the Lion Records. It's just fantastic. Because they kind of like, name. they had a little bit of mainstream success, if you could call it that. I was their publicist, and yes, I would call it that. Yes, that's, <laughs> a, that's a place where I wanted to start, which was you were the publicist I think what makes this piece so interesting to me is that we talked at the beginning about how, you know, quote unquote, music can save your life and what that means and what music means to you. And this is an example of this guy is a Christian in the Christian rock world. And then he starts to have doubts and then he starts writing essentially not just secular music, but almost like anti-Christian in some ways. Well, you know, he made basically his whole catalog largely about uh, his relationship with faith. And then he starts to, you know... He made a couple of really incredible records where uh, kind of at the height of, uh, you know, Bush years, culture war, et cetera, that um, sort of reflecting on, you know, the religious right and incredible parables. I mean, he's an incredibly gifted songwriter and just sort of saying, like, that's not, if that's like your version of Christianity, I don't want it. Yeah. And that starts to give away to something else entirely as it sort of ebbs away from him. He's someone who grew up in a Christian college and married at 22 and... His parents are, you know, uh, in the ministry and uh-huh. all of this stuff. And his music, in a way, is, you know, just so much built around an expression of faith. And then he basically starts drinking to blot out the thought, God does not exist. And he finds his way to, you know, a measure of sobriety and agnosticism. And then is invited back to play the Christian festival that mm-hmm. he once headlined for the first time as an agnostic. And then it's not just that he plays, it's like he has, he has to have like a Q&A. He does. Because the fans are so, they're grappling he, with these but, questions. But, but, but he, after this point, he starts basically doing, he pioneered this sort of idea of like living room tours in some ways. Um, he sells them his ticketed events in part so that he's in people's houses and they can, they sit at his feet and ask him questions. And he like shows up for them in that way in part because it's sort of like, uh, and you know, say this in the piece, it's like he flips that script of like, you might be the only Christian someone ever meets. He is probably the only agnostic that Christian kids are going to get to own a record by. Yeah. Because he's like this name brand Christian dude. You worked with all these bands, then you become a full-time writer. What is the relationship with having been a publicist and now going in to write about these same Musicians. It took me two years before somebody would take that story, that Dave Bazan story, because I had been his publicist. Really? I pitched it every which way I possibly could. Spin, GQ, Rolling Stone, everybody's like, this is an incredible story, please let me report this. And um, the only way it was ever actually to, you know, was able to be taken by the reader is that this uh, this Christian festival happens in downstate Illinois, close enough that we consider it local. And they're like, let's just try it, you know. But they're like, you have to be really clear about your relationship with them. But I hadn't, sp- I hadn't spoken to him in years. Oh. It's in the first, tech, first yeah. I mean, I had to like, get it right out of the way so that people could. And it wound up being, um, it was, it's the biggest music story the reader ever had. I mean, in any of those magazines you pitched it to, it would have been so. That's what I at thought. Home. But, but you know what? This, this, the story of that story, and also like probably the four or five biggest pieces I've ever done. I always tried to, to like broadcast this. Is that those were the stories nobody would take. 
I mean, I had to fight for those stories. Nobody wanted the, the BuzzFeed advertising story. Nobody wanted yeah. R. Kelly. No one wanted this Dave Bazan piece. There's another piece or two in there that I'm forgetting. Yeah. Five biggest stories of my career that have basically defined my career are the stories that, like, I was pitching them for, like, you know, 18 months, or they were things that everybody turned down. And you think for different reasons for each? Because they're, in part because they're difficult, they were difficult stories. Yeah. The R. Kelly one is people didn't want to talk about it, or they just were ignoring it. Yeah. People didn't care. I also thought people didn't care. I thought uh, maybe 10,000 people would read it. And I wanted it to exist in part to, for editors and other people to start a discussion. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then the BuzzFeed piece is really a, a kind of like lightning rod subject in some ways. Well, about people, 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 selling did, their music people advertising. Um, said, well, how do we tell this story? This is a bunch of meetings. How do we show what's happening? A lot of this is just meetings. Yeah. <laughs> I needed to do that story because I, I, I basically had a new baby and... Um, it's like, what can I do that is a national story that I can report just locally huh. and that I can take my time with because I'm, I basically work during nap time and I can barely afford a babysitter and, you know, all this stuff. Right. And I was like, what do we have here? We have advertising. Okay, I know some people really die up in music world advertising. I'll just do this. Was and, that Steve Kendall? And Steve, um, at that time, Steve had been my editor at Spin and had taken some stories that nobody wanted to let me do, you know, like the Lana Del Rey piece. He's a fantastic editor. I've learned so much from him. And uh, he had, he's like, I'm going someplace where I could probably take this story. <laughs> and I reported it for 11 months, like just incrementally. That story is about, I mean, in a way, it's about this idea of like selling out that's mm-hmm. always like pervasive in, in mm-hmm. quest, you know, artistic endeavors. And it's interesting that you kind of you went the other way in some ways to what people would like you were a publicist like a lot of journalists mm-hmm. end up in other p- mm-hmm. publicity or marketing or something because it's hard to make a living as a journalist mm-hmm. in many ways and you kind of like started in what would be like considered the sellout position i'm not saying it is i was part of the machine yeah you know i manufactured the narrative you know i used my journalist brain to kind of sell bands yeah you know back when i did that like what what part of this is the good story I mean the thing about working in the music industry for as long as I did before I went into full-time writing the analogy I always use is like you know you work in the kitchen of a restaurant long enough and you never want to eat there again because you know what goes in the food yeah I mean that was really it and I think in that way that helped informed uh, you know both the uh, how selling out saved indie rock that buzzfeed piece and uh, passion of dave Bazan. just understanding what it really takes for um, people to cross over the the machinations of it all the just the 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 function of the industry and how things are sort of trickled down you know yeah it seems like you're partly now, working as an editor, you worked at as a music editor at Rookie, mm-hmm. and now at Pitchfork, and editing the Pitchfork Review, where you are editor in chief. Partly, what I want to ask is, what has that transition been like to be have been this music writer for all these years, and now to be an editor for oftentimes probably much younger music writers who are kind of coming up? Much, much younger music writers. <laughs> Dear listener, I'm actually a very spry seventy. <laughs> Um, <laughs> um, I mean, that's part of the reason I wanted to do it. Yeah. Especially after putting together the book and reread probably 90% of what I've ever written, which is if anyone is looking for a truly humbling <laughs> and painful experience, I would really recommend read everything you've ever written. All just the way go back for it. Just go. Just, just dig in. And I don't know why I started at the beginning. Like I literally, like in earnest, was like, I'll just go crack up in this like moldy box in my garage, and I'll just start with ninth grade. And I, like an hour later, it's like this this book. This book's gonna be four pages long. Anyways, I I put together the book. And when I got to the the the, the book, at the end of the book, and and the incredibly, you know, year-long editing process of it. Um, you know, it was just really 
culling it and then having that and then having that and having that until we got down to, I think, the 43 pieces. But, you know, we literally started with hundreds. Yeah. And when I got to the end of that, I was like, oh, I've taken a lot of my big ideas to their natural conclusion. I've explored them fully. I can see that. I want to kind of lie fallow in a in a way for a little while until my what will be my next big idea what will be my next framework what will be the thing that takes me the next 10 years and that was sort of where I was right at the time that you know I I I had started working on the pitchfork review um, as a senior editor but it was it was uh, you know very Mm part-time and um, that's when I got a call from Mark Richardson who's the editor-in-chief at Pitchfork and my boss you know, wonderful editor, and was like, do you want to come run the pitch? And I was like, sure. I've never had a job. But you seem to have taken to it. When I see people, you know, periodically there's things on Twitter where people are like, say who your favorite editor is, and Pitchfork writers say you, or several of them say have said you. I've seen it very recently. Not all writers are good editors, I know from experience. What was your approach in turning to that what I wanted to do by being an editor at Rookie and then later Pitchfork was to give young writers the same sort of editorial relationship I had at Chicago Reader, the same sort of expectations and opportunities, and the same sort of nurturing that I had at Spin. Mm-hmm. The Reader and Spin were really, you know, the defining editorial relationships. Those are the places I learned how to write. But the conventional wisdom now is that nobody has time. Editors don't have time, especially when you're talking about and that's digital. Why, that's why I want to edit. That's why I edit the way I edit with people. Mm-hmm. Kiki used to give me top edits that would make me cry. And and the the sort of joke amongst some of the other younger writers are like, well, you're not truly a reader writer until you get a top edit where you've cried when you receive it. <laughs> I trust it. Them. They did so many things to make make me trust them and say, no one's going to make you look stupid. And, you know, they made my jokes funnier. They made, you know, they just would ask me why, 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 you know, and just make me keep digging down till I hit the real truth of a piece critically or just, you know, making sure I just get it right. Mm-hmm. And I work with so many incredible young writers and I want to give them, however I can, the same opportunities to do great work that I did and to bring who and how they are and their experience of the world into their pieces because I think that is really like why there's so much great criticism happening right now is kids who grew up on Tumblr and, and are really not particularly Catholic about their tastes and have absorbed the world and they are bringing in their experience and understanding of the world as a person of color, as a trans person, as, you know, being young and queer and from the South and all of these things. And it's like we're in an era of like, you know, a lot of the gatekeeping is is gone that we can like get everybody in and like the the, the, the canons can shift mm-hmm. about music because of everybody who's writing about it. And we can have all of these new and exciting ideas being explored by all that people bring to it, and particularly young writers. Mm -hmm. And I also really try to coax a particular kind of fearlessness out of people that Twitter has bred into many people because because people, young writers in particular, I mean, everybody is, I think, to a certain extent, afraid of backlash from Twitter if you write something that's negative or that's very critical, or even if, you know, in the case of... uh, some young female writers that I work with getting doxxed over yeah. um, critical pieces. Yeah. We have not yet talked about the title of this book, which I know you are asked to talk about a lot. <laughs> um, the title of the book, which we haven't even said yet, is the first collection of criticism by a living female rock critic. And it's sort of dealt with like immediately an in introduction. Like, yes, uh, there have been other books that like sort of touch on this, but actually like this is why I titled it this way. But who came up with this title? Did you come up with the title? Yes. And did you know from the beginning that that's what you wanted to title this book? No, it was a joke. Was it? I, I was joking with uh, Tim Kinsella. I, I remember it really distinctly. We had decided to do the book, and we'd had like a meeting in my living room or something, and I, I, we were walking out, and he's like, well, what are we going to call this thing? And I was like, well, 
you know, it's the first collection of criticism by a living female rock critic or something, you know, but I was like laughing when I saw it. And he's like, "That is that it? That has to be it. No, that's it. <laughs> really? And we are kind of up against like a deadline of having to have a title for it. But it's an incredible title. I mean, it, because it, it... I have an agenda. Yeah. I, that you never, you can't read my writing and not know that I have a... <laughs> <laughs> staunch fucking agenda at all times and and my primary concern with with the title of course was erasing anybody else's work or having people think like I am the only one that did it or right. like I paved the way right. because none of those things are true you know sometimes I'm fearful in like the um, the amount of attention that my book has gotten which is substantial for I very fortunately I have great publicists whatever and you know, sometimes I talk to people and they're like, you paved the way. I was like, no. I read Rock She Wrote when I was 16 years old. And I grew up in a city, you know, Minneapolis City Pages. When I grew up, Terry Sutton was the pop critic. And she was one of the, she was like the critic. I knew then when I was very first making a fanzine, I was part of a lineage. Because I had a book that showed me that. Mm-hmm. That, you know, dozens of women had been doing this before me. I knew I was part of a tradition. I just would have assumed by now that all of those women would have had books too. Right. That seems like the thing that it ties back into what I sort of like glancingly mentioned, which is on on Twitter, you not that long ago sort of tweeted out people of color and women who have had bad experiences in the music industry. What was your first experience of being told you didn't count? Yeah, that was it. I mean, extraordinary responses, extraordinarily upsetting and depressing in many ways. When did I start? That was like on a Wednesday. And by Saturday, it was like in the low thousands. It was 400 in the first day. In the first 19 hours, we storified it at 19 hours and it Mm -hmm. was 400. And these are people saying, I had this experience at a show or I had this experience from an editor or what have you that... It was everything from being like groped at a show or showing up at a show that you're going to play and being told like, um, sorry, no groupies or whatever, <laughs> like someone literally carrying a drum kit um, to show that they're headlining uh, to people's experience of being sexually assaulted. So, I mean, it was like the gamut from, you know, casual sexism and microaggressions but constant ones, perhaps, or significant ones. I mean, it's all significant to, like, people just kind of destroying other people's lives. I mean, it so ties in with some of the pieces in the book. Like, you have this piece about about emo music and how it did not find a place for women in in that sort of scene. There's just a lot of pieces that sort of, like, it feels like it's all. it was almost all leading to that point, in a way for you to ask that question and then say, look, here it all is. And you know it. And here's here here's the um the I don't know if it's the irony, but um I was literally crowdsourcing something. For, for to write something. I was, had a speech coming up. I was keynoting Big Sound, which is like uh, the South by Southwest of Australia. Uh-huh. I was like the lady who was being asked to talk. And the thing I wanted to talk about was like I had a lot of early uh, formative experiences where my curiosity and interest in music was met with encouragement and so that when I was met with discouragement or people being scumbags I was like that's not the truth of this the discouragement didn't keep me down because I had another experience to sort of buoy it and I was I wanted to talk about we have to like encourage young women and fangirls and like not marginalize fangirls and that's what I was going to talk about uh-huh. and uh and uh my my friend and colleague Molly Bushman uh one of our great critics at Pitchfork was like, why don't you just ask around and see what are like some of the really common ways that women are marginalized? I was, I was literally doing the lazy journalist thing and crowdsourcing. <laughs> and this is what came of it. Yeah. Here's the thing that I have to remind people when we're talking about this. Think about who you didn't see in that discussion, particularly women of color and people of color within the scene, like the different price that is to be paid for talking about the ways you're marginalized. Mm-hmm. It was mostly it was a lot of white women. Mm-hmm. And also the things that weren't being tweeted. The DMs and the emails that I've gotten since, basically we should create like a a name and shame list or a shit list, post it in every fucking venue bathroom and burn this motherfucker down. Mm -hmm. That is my feeling Mm -hmm. right now. Do you feel like this all points you in a direction of doing something more than you're doing? I mean, in some ways, the thing that would come out of all of this was be, you should publish a book like the book that you just published. (laughs) (laughs) 
uh, you know, I'm not I'm not at liberty to talk about it right now. But you know, some of us girls have some plans right now. Oh, all right. <laughs> I know that that probably sounds a little bit more <laughs> ominous than it does, but you know, um, you, you can't not do anything once you know all this stuff. You know, but there's also it's just so much that it could make you feel we, like what can what what can you do? This is so it was so pervasive. It's really hard for me to talk about this without crying because there's just there's so many more stories that I know in the last couple of weeks than what's just on Twitter. Yeah. And some women have very bravely shared so many things. I feel like f- you know for for the better we can't see all of this and look away anymore. Maybe if that's like the the great thing to come of it, and then and the other thing is th- women writing to me and saying, "I was so isolated in this experience because since my uh my keynote from Big Sound went on YouTube and I tweeted and some other people tweeted it, and it's seemingly becoming a very big deal in Australia, particularly which has an even more male dominated set of uh industries than we do i was realizing like i need to i need to if i have a room full of people who work in an industry and even some of them have power and the rest are going to be women that need to feel a sense of solidarity okay i'm just going to real talk this like and that's kind of what happened and then uh, about two days before uh, a friend of mine uh, who lives around brisbane a rookie contributor was saying you know there's been a rash of drugging and sexual assaults at shows here and I was like okay then we're gonna just I'm just gonna go there I'm just gonna go there and I mean you can sort of see in the when I'm talking it's like I'm following my speech for about two pages and then I just start basically talking from my heart yeah. and my experience and my understanding of this and um, the letters I've gotten since you know one of the women who's one of the nine professional sound women in Australia who's left the business because she can't get hired anymore even though she's great at what she does and women really um, pouring their hearts out and and they're telling me of their experience and and it's worse than we think it's all worse than we think because so much of it we don't see and we don't hear about because so many women are just muted by experience by literally just being crushed by what they have to go through to be here, to write, to make music, to go to shows. I don't know how to fix it. I don't know how to fix it. But the good thing is that people are asking me to come and basically like, will you come to South by Southwest and give us this talk and yeah. have this have this conversation and how can we do this? And I'm not <laughs> by any means the only one qualified to talk about this. I'm just the woman that's being given a platform right now and um and so I sort of feel, I guess, like entrusted with some of this. And so that's why, like any, any opportunity to speak, I'm, I'm talking about this stuff yeah. more so than my book. Yeah. You know, my book's fine. It's gonna do great. I'm on the fourth printing. It's been out three months. Like it's gonna be fine. I don't need to talk about my book or my work. But I actually think the book is is like really connected to this in a way because the book is sort of like, in a different way, saying to all those people potentially I have built a career unashamedly writing from a feminist perspective and you can do it too. And my, my book before this was that too, but it was for teenage girls and it was about, you can go into guitar center and um, (laughs) and not be crushed by the experience. Here's what you need to know. (laughs) But that's what's so fucked about a lot of the stuff is that you, the person you really need to talk to or that really need to listen to you are men. And and you know what? Because I am in a lot of ways, in a lot of places that I've been, I am like the token girl that's let in the clubhouse. And I've always tried to force this conversation whether people want to have it or not because of that. Mm-hmm. Music is, our, is the great unifier. Yeah. It just seems insane to not have the same diversity of people and, writing and, music. and yet for decades we had a, a canon that was dictated by old white men that was made of old white men that valued you know 
guitars and like men's romantic pain above everything else and and so so much of criticism is was about that i mean that's what the introduction you know the piece that basically serves as like the introduction in my book is about is like you know i i was about 10 years into writing and all of a sudden you know i read like the the big nick tosh's collection and the 10th anniversary of uh lester banks carburetor dung and you know, there was like a handful of books that kind of all came out around then. And it was, you know, all the like canonical men and the cream writers and, you know, dudes that were like asking Patti Smith about her tits while they're interviewing her, you know, because it's like 1979 and you do that and like whatever. And I was like, I love this and I love music in the same way that these these wasted old men do, Um, you know, whatever, like, like. Where do I fit in this? How I love music, how I participate, my experience of like going to shows and like not feeling safe. How does all of this fucking fit in here? Mm-hmm. I love Van Morrison the same way that Lester Bangs loves Van Morrison. Where do I fit in this? Mm-hmm. You know, my life is saved by songs. I am the same creature as these craggly old dudes, but I am also not not them at all. <laughs> but this seems like this is their space. Mm-hmm. You know that I'm I'm gonna try to interlope into. You you mentioned you know sort of going fallow for a little while when it turns to writing about big ideas. Do you feel like you would hope that you would have another collection later in your career? Like, do you think you'll return to like this volume of writing and like feel like there's a there's a sort of second chapter? Well, part of the reason that <laughs> part of the reason that I even had enough stuff to put in a book I mean you know whatever I can say like I'm 19 years into my career or 20 I guess yeah so I started writing at 16 so yeah. what's that 23 yeah. hey, I've been saying 19 this entire press cycle um, <laughs> I'm an idiot. um but part of the reason I even had enough stuff to work with is because I was freelance this whole time yeah and I made shit word rate yeah you know for a lot of it and so I had to write 7,000 words a month at the reader. You know, my national work basically came from Spin and later on GQ. And so I just had a ton to work with. And I don't know if I'll ever be freelance again and, and be able to... I mean, I don't, I don't know. But I was... I mean, I filed to the reader a weekly byline of probably five show previews, two album things. You know, I, I just was given a lot of space. The hustle, the real hustle. Yeah. And yeah. that's what this is kind of the product of. Yeah. And so if there's going to be another one, it might take a while. Yeah. I am working on a proposal for another book. A different book. Yeah. Yeah. But it is. it has to do with women and music history. I like history because it's settled. There's the the chapter in, or section in here that's called Real Fake. Mm-hmm. It was actually going to be book number three. But uh, the thing that changed my mind was when uh, Taylor Swift's Shake It Off came out, because Taylor Swift was kind of part of the equation of that book, about uh-huh. women and performance and authenticity and pop primarily. And it was like, that was such a seismic, like the reaction to that was such a seismic shift around the Taylor Swift discussion that I was like, what if I was 80% done with this book? And then the entire conversation about Taylor Swift changed and then this book still isn't coming out for 18 months. Uh, yeah. Like, no. And I was like, I'm going to just move on to my next idea, which is, it takes place in the 70s. So it's set. It can't, it can't go, be, change it from it out can't from be seriously recontextualized. So it is firm. Well, it's I, staying in place. <laughs> I think we can agree if, that if, like, some years from now, you publish another collection and it's called The Section Collection of Criticism by... Uh, a living female rock critic that would be disappointing all around like that better not happen <laughs> you know part of the part of the whole thing in the introduction is is because people told me that were like there's no precedent for this you know and it's just like what they were saying was there's no gendered precedent right you know because it's like the the 129th billionth collection of criticism but it's you know they're all dudes and um or most of them and and uh that I work with so many really great, brilliant young writers who should have a book in the next three years. Yeah. And I don't want them to hear what I heard for a decade about why this book can't exist. How would you categorize what you heard? People telling me 
feminist criticism doesn't sell. You're not well known enough. Anthologies don't sell. Essays don't sell. Uh, music books don't sell. And while I'm being told this, it's like Rob Sheffield is like on New York Times bestseller. And I see like, a, you know, how many like jajillion printings of um, Chuck Klosterman books, you know, and I was just like, no, like this is this is like I'm going to make that, but I'm going to make it for girls. Like, come on, they're there. They're waiting. Trust me, they are waiting. And people be like, eh. and it took my friend Tim Kinsella, who has worked in the same world that I am for 20 years. He inherited Featherproof from the people that started it. And he came to me and said, I want this to be the first book. And I was like, OK, good, because I pretty much have it ready. Wow. It's a fantastic book. And it's, thank you. I tried. I hope that it keeps getting the attention that it deserves. Thank you for being on the podcast in this very hot uh, podcast room that we have. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a, I have to tell you, I was really particularly psyched to come be on a podcast that I love and learn from. Times are hard. That's it for this week's long-form podcast. Thank you to Jessica Hopper for making time while she was very briefly in New York to come by. You should pick up her book, The First Collection of Criticism by a Living Female Rock Critic. It's available everywhere. And thank you to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lamer of Longform. Thank you to our sponsors, who are Fracture, Blue Apron, and, of course, MailChimp. Our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, is fantastic. Our intern this week, very helpful, Molly Bain. And we'll see you next week. To do your dirty work. Oh, yeah. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.